open your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 2. Those of you who've been around for a year or more, I don't remember when I started the series in 1 John, but we finished chapter 1 and we went into chapter 2, I think through verse 11, and I actually did three sermons in 1 John chapter 2. I think I did the first two verses as a sermon, verses 3 through 6 as a sermon, and then verses 7 through 11 as a sermon. <clears throat> Just to kind of catch us up this morning, I want to do 1 through 11 as a group, as, as one sermon, to kind of get us back into this book as we go through verse by verse. We stopped because I just realized the emphasis in 1 John on uh, the commands, the law of God, and how it was an important aspect of our Christian life. So we stopped, went back to Exodus 20 and did the Ten Commandments, and now we're coming back to 1 John, just so you understand the logic of where we are here. As I look at 1 John chapter 2, I want to this morning sum up everything that's here under one word, and that's the word propitiation. Propitiation's a big word. It's not used. I don't think I've ever heard it used in just everyday language. It's not used in the Bible much either, um, but it's an important word, and it's a word I think we need to know, understand. It's a word our children need to understand as well. Uh, if I were to start with the question, what can wash away my sins? Most of us would answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We've been conditioned uh, for that answer. That's the right answer. What, what, is, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want to go one step further. Why is it that the blood of Jesus washes away our sins? Why is it that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Why is it that it's Christ who makes us right before a holy God? And the answer to that comes down to propitiation. And I want us to think about propitiation as a very important aspect or work of Christ. It's in our text. Look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, so what can wash away our sins? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So this is a crucial aspect of our faith and belief, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Let me give you a just brief, quick definition. Propitiation is averting the wrath of God by the offering of an acceptable gift. Propitiation is averting the wrath or holding back, appeasing the wrath of God by the offering of an acceptable gift. I want us to, first of all, just kind of look at the concept of propitiation, kind of unpack it a little bit. It's, it's an easy study to do compared to other studies because the word itself is only used four times in the entire New Testament. So we can look them all up. One of them we just read, 1 John uh, 2, 2. There's only three other places to go to. So let's look at those other three places, and I think they all give us a little aspect of propitiation, and we'll understand it more completely. Romans 3, verse 25, Hebrews 2, 
verse 17. I didn't get them up here for you, but Romans 3, 25, Hebrews 2, 17, 1 John 4, verse 10, and then we'll come back to 1 John 2, 2. Let's look at Romans 3, verse 23, 25. Romans 3, verse 25. Whom God put forward, let me, I guess I need to back up so you know the subject. Verse 24, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Now, notice first of all, it's just that the plain uh, teaching of the text is God the Father put forward Christ as the propitiation for our sins. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. Nobody else came up with it as a good idea. God the Father put forth Christ as the propitiation for our sins. In other words, if propitiation is averting the wrath of God, so God is angry at us because of our sins, we don't get to heaven, stand before the righteous judge, and we begin to see His wrath. Because as we see His wrath... Rightly so, he looks at us, and sin is oozing out of every pore in our body. It's dripping from our eyes and our ears, and he looks at us, and he's about to lunge us into eternal hell. And so we grab Christ, and we put Christ in front of us as a shield. No, 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 no. That's not what happens. We don't take Christ and shield ourselves from the wrath of God. God puts forth Christ. Big difference. God puts forth Christ and shields us from his own wrath. You begin to see the beauty and the glory of propitiation that God wants to avert his he's just it's right for him to destroy and demolish and send sin to hell and sinners to hell. It's right. It's just. It's righteous. But in his righteousness, he says, let me put Christ forward in front of you so that my wrath is poured out on Christ. Instead of on you. Begin to see the beauty of God loving us. Hebrews 2. Let's look at the next passage. Verse 17. Hebrews 2 verse 17. I don't know how long this is going to last. I'm just going to go ahead and confess. I spilled pancake syrup on my Bible. And so my pages stick 
I have read the Bible once or twice, and now they're sticking. So anyway, it was it, they were good pancakes. Hebrews two, verse seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there's the second place. In order to be a merciful, and so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation. Go back to the first part of the verse. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Christ had to substitute himself for us. He had to be like us in every respect. In order to be a faithful high priest, a priest is the one who makes offering to God that's acceptable. Propitiation is averting the wrath. God puts forward Christ to avert the wrath. The priest makes offering that is acceptable to God. So we've seen part of propitiation in Romans 3. We see another part here in Hebrews 2, verse 17, that Christ, in order to be a high priest, he came to earth took human flesh to become like us in every respect. How many of us have seen pornography just rip apart a relationship? You've seen it maybe in your own family, your own marriage. You've seen it in other people's lives. And what you're seeing is people captivated by adultery and fornication and gratifying themselves beyond God's design. And to do that, it destroys marriages and it destroys homes. But suppose you've been working through that situation and as you work through that situation, you offer to your fornicating wife or husband or child, I want you to come back home. Let's, let's work towards reconciliation. Let's, let's come up with some things we can do to, to again be unified. And so they, they, they pack up their stuff and they come to your house to, to come back home. And as they come with their first box in their hand to the door, you open the door and you greet them and say, let me help you with that. And you, you grab the first box from their hands. And as you look into the box, you see pornographic material. And your anger goes through the roof. No, no, absolutely not. That is what is destroying us. Burn it up. Burn it up right now. No. 
you don't bring that back into our home. It's going to destroy us. And what I want us to see is as we come before God, what do we bring? We bring our offering. Except what's in our hands is not our pornography. We are the adulterer. We are the fornicator. We go before God. God says, what do you have to offer? We don't have nothing. We just have ourselves. This is all we got. And God says, no, no. Burn it up right now. Because we have broken the sins. We have been unfaithful. We have been estranged from Him. We've been gratifying ourselves with no thought to Him. And He's furious. And Christ says, Hold on. Let me present an offering. Christ put forward by God the Father says, I will substitute myself. I will stand in for them. I will be their righteousness. I will be their sinlessness. I will be their holiness. And let your wrath follow me. And let them enter in. Averting the wrath of God with an acceptable offering. See how beautiful propitiation is? God wants you to know it. Third place, look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, we see the overwhelming grace of God. This is love, not that we came up with an idea uh, not that we loved God, but God loved us. Loved us. God's, the offering given to God is sent from God. We're not in this world trying to get God to love us. Nowhere does the Bible say you know, God is pleading with trying to get you to love God. Oh, I just hope you would love God. I just. I hope you'll finally see the wisdom in this. You just need to love God. You need to love God. You need to love God. That seems to be the message. You need to love God. No, no, that's not the message. 1 John 4, verse 10 says that's not the message at all. The message is, and this is love, not that we love God. Not trying to get you to do that. But that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The good news, the message is that Christ says, I want to get God the Father to love you. And that can't happen because of your sin unless I become 
the propitiation for your sins. The goal in life is for God the Father to love us and to receive us and to accept us into his family. And Christ alone does that because he becomes the propitiation for our sins. He averts the wrath of God so that we might be loved by God. Now, let's get to our text. Took me a long time to get here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We have an advocate with the Father. Let me, let me back up. It's just amazing that even this phrase is said. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Is that not an amazing statement? I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. We'd all be lying if we said we didn't sin. That's an amazing statement. You're writing to us so that we can quit sinning? That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that we might not sin, really. Um, all we bring to Christ is sin. We stand before God and God says, what you got? This is all we got. All we bring is sin. We don't have anything that's not sinful. Christ says, well, so that you can stand before God without sin, let me be the propitiation. Let me avert the wrath of God by offering a sinless sacrifice in your place. Let me be the perfect sacrifice so that you can stand before God without sin. Now, the way... That happens is by faith. You don't earn it. You receive Christ by faith. As many as receive him to, him, to them he gives the right to be children of God. We don't do anything to get Christ as our propitiation. It's his choice. God puts him forward. We receive Christ. As we receive Christ, then we are considered sinless before God. And God's wrath is averted and he receives us. And the text says that he is not only the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now think about that phrase. What that phrase is saying is that Christ's sacrifice, his substitution of himself for his people, it is sufficient for the whole world. No one, nowhere... No matter the tribe, no matter the tongue, no matter the nation, nowhere, no one, nowhere needs Christ plus one more thing in order to get to heaven. It's Christ and Christ alone. He is the propitiation. He's the one who averts the wrath, substitutes himself as the offering acceptable to God, not only for me, not only for you, but for everyone in the whole world. The question is not about sufficiency. Does his sacrifice sufficiently cover all my sins? The answer, yes. The question is not sufficiency. The question is efficiency. Is it effective for you? The sacrifice is sufficient. It's all you need. It's not Christ plus one more thing. You don't need Christ plus one more following some rule. It's just Christ and Christ alone. 
sufficient sacrifice for you and me. But is it efficient? Is it effective? Does it work for you? If we receive him by faith, it works. Those who come to him, those who receive him, to them alone he gives the right to be children of God. I don't know. Have you received him? I know Christ's propitiatory work is sufficient. But I don't know if it's effective and efficient for you. You tell me. Have you received Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? As your only hope of averting the wrath of God and receiving the offering that's acceptable in His sight? See how badly we need to understand this process of propitiation. We need Christ. And when Christ comes into our lives, He changes things. Changes our heart. And when He changes our hearts, two loves come forth. This is fruit. If You say, well, I think I received Christ. I understand His sufficiency. I'm struggling maybe with the efficiency of that. Did, did Christ, was Christ really received by me? So I can know without doubt when I stand before the righteous judge who deserves to throw me into hell, when I stand before him, I want to know Christ is my effective offering. How can I know that 100%? And God gives us in this text two fruits that you can know it. One is, he says, he changes your heart, and he will give you a love for commands, God's commands, and he changes your heart, and he'll give you a love for God's church. Two things are clear. Non-Christians don't have either. A love for God's commands, and I'm going to show it to you, and a love for God's church. So let's look at those two radical transformations that happen in our hearts our lives as a consequence or as a fruit of propitiation. So keep going in 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know. So I want you to know something here. Here it is. I want you to know we've come to know him. So I want you to know he is your propitiation. First thing, commands. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandment, liar. And the truth is not in him. One of the confidence that we have that we are truly covered by Christ is that we have this love for his commands. Notice what it says. It doesn't say that one of the ways you know you're a Christian is you cleaned up your act. You did what mama said. You did what daddy said. You did what the preacher said. And you started obeying more frequently. That's not what it said. It says the way you know that you've come to know him is you. We keep his commandments. And if we don't, we're lying. We're, say, we're, we're talking a talk, but we're not walking the walk. Everybody knows that's hypocrisy, that's a lie, doesn't hold water. And that's exactly what God says about it as well. He doesn't say, 
now, now that God has saved you, you need to clean up your act. That's not what he says. Now that God has saved you, has become your propitiation for your sins, you, it's, it's a fruit. You see, you just do this. I'm not asking you to do it. I'm not telling you, you better do it. I'm saying it's a fruit. It's so that you can know that Christ is a propitiation for your sins. You begin to have a love for God's commands. That's not natural. Unbelievers don't do it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, first three verses. Ephesians 2, first three verses. This tells us our natural state. This is how we're born. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1, says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world. So the deadness here, you're walking according to the course of the world. It's not describing physical deadness because you couldn't walk if you are physically dead. It's talking about spiritual deadness. You're dead in sin. You're walking about following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm going to come back to that, so remember it. You're following the spirit that's now in, at work in the sons of disobedience. We're, we have by our nature this, this desire to be disobedient. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, see, this is our nature, this is how we're born, children of wrath, wrath, like the rest of mankind, everybody, not just somebody, but the rest of mankind is all under the wrath of God. We are born sinners that God should justly destroy. We're born under the wrath of God, we're all disobedient. We're sons of disobedience. What would change that? What would change us from being a child of disobedience to a child of obedience? Propitiation. Propitiation changes it. It says you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, Son of God, who is the propitiation for your sins so that you can know you no longer are a child of disobedience. But now you're a child of obedience. You know the commands. You love the commands. You want to keep the commands. That's not natural. That only happens because Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are His workmanship. God saves us and He works in us that which is pleasing to Him so that you may do the works. And he says, I ordained even before the foundation of the world. I wanted you to do works, and those works are obedience to His commands. He didn't say, hey, I need you to go out there and clean up your act. He's put within you a new heart that wants to obey. You're not having to come up with some discipline to make this happen. I just wanted you to know the commands so that you could obey the commands because I knew the heart of God in you would take you there. 
you see, that's a fruit. It's, it's not you earning salvation. It's you confirming that Christ is the propitiation for your sins. Can we fake it? Not really. You really can't. You say, it's confusing to me then. Because, you know, I, I know some people that they're nice. And they don't hurt anybody. So, are they Christian? Well, is Christ their propitiation for their sins? Have they received Christ as their Lord said? No. But they're really nice. Well, see, that's, they're, not, they're not your counterfeit. They're just being good humanitarians. Being nice to people and not hurting people is not obedience to God's commands. That's just being courteous. That's being humanitarian. Um, let me show it to you several ways. Look at John 14. John 14. This is how Jesus says it. He, Jesus does not come off of the fruit of commandment keeping at all. You see it strong in this chapter on the Holy Spirit. But John 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, Jesus is talking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's no doubt about that. You love me, you love Jesus, you will keep my commandments. Uh, look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. It's not like this is, this is a bad thing. This is loving thing. You love me, God, Jesus says, you keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you love me. It goes both ways with it. Uh, verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Just absolutely no doubt about it. That is fruit to Christ being the propitiation for us. Um, now, let's go back to 1 John. Let me finish up this kind of section. Uh, where was I? Verse, the end of verse 5. He, is, is a liar, and the truth is not in Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly... The love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I just want you to see the connection between the love of God and our obedience. We know that whoever keeps His word, keeps the commands, the love of God is perfected. And you're now walking the way Jesus walked. Again, think about how did Jesus walk as a Christian. Christians walk the way Jesus walked. Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus says, As I was coming into the world, he says to God the Father. So you got God the Son talking to God the Father. And he says, You have prepared a body for me that I might do your will. As Jesus came into the world, taking on flesh, he says, I'm coming into the world to actively do your will, to obey your commands. It's called active obedience of Christ. When he dies on the cross and he's taking the wrath of God, it's called passive obedience of Christ. But as Christ 
came into the world says, my, my actions, my passions, my heart's desire is to obey God, keep his commands. When he's about to go to the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's dropping sweats of drops of blood, asking the disciples to pray for him. And he says, you know, basically, God, no, no one in their right mind would want the misery of crucifixion. I don't want it, but not my will. Your will be done. Still, my passion is to be obedient to God the Father. From cradle to grave, Christ's passion was obedience to God's commands. First John says, if we are in Christ, we will walk as Christ walked. His walk was obedient walk. He never did one disobedient act. He was sinless. He's writing to those who says, I want, to, I want to write to you in such a way that you, you may not sin. You can have the power of Christ within you to keep the commands of God. When we profess faith in Christ, we're professing we are those who obey Him. We know His commands. We keep His commands. We don't do that ever, ever, ever to earn salvation. That's not the gospel. The good news is we do it as a fruit of the gospel. That Christ has saved us, become the propitiation for our sins, that we might walk in a newness of life, and that newness of life is obedience to God's commands. Now, I told you I can eliminate. Can, can a non-Christian counterfeit it? No. Let's just take the first four commands. I'm, I don't have time to go through all ten. You can do it in your time this afternoon. But just take the first four commandments. Can any non-Christian keep it? No. First commandments, have no other God. Non-Christian's got other gods. He cannot keep the first command. He cannot love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Can't do it. It's not his heart, not his passion. Can't keep it. Second commandment, make no idols. He's constantly making idols. He said, well, that's the way you love God, but I, I, this is my truth. This is the way I love God. That's making idols. He can't keep the second commandment. He always, if he does try to love God, he always wants to love God his way, and that's not obedience to the second commandment. Can't keep the first commandment. Can't keep the second commandment. Have you ever known a non-believer who speaks well of God and for God? Third commandment. No. Can't do it. Fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it special. Can't do it, never done it. I don't want to keep one day special just for God. <laughs> See, there is no real counterfeit. Those who have Christ as the propitiation for their sins, they can keep these commands where the non-believer can't. The non-believer can be a good humanitarian. They can be a nice friend. But they're not one purchased and bought by the blood of Christ. Christ has not become the propitiation for their sins. Third, let's move on to propitiation people. We've, we've looked at the precepts, how it's part of the propitiation process. Let's look at the people. Chapter 2, verse 7 through 11. Verse John. Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment. 
that I'm writing to you, which is, the, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother in the light and in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And let me unpack that. Again, non-Christians can't imitate this either. Can a non-Christian love his brother? Well, we need to define brother here. We need to understand what he's talking about. He says, I'm, I'm giving you a new commandment. Not really a new commandment. It's new in him and it's new in you, but it's not really new. Uh, what's he talking about? Well, the commandment is to love your brother, to love your neighbor as yourself. You can look it up. It's, it's in the, the book of Leviticus. I think it's chapter 19, verse 18, that we're to love one another as ourselves. So it's not a new commandment. The Old Testament saints had that command. It's new in him, in Christ, and in you. So what's the new aspect of loving our neighbor or loving our brother? And the way to understand this, I think, is to understand that the Jew understood God was creating a national church. And he was creating this national church out of the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation was taught because God was choosing them to love one another. But that didn't mean they had to love the rest of the world. I'll give you a good example of that. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Acts chapter 10 Verse 28, and this is where we'll see the newness. Acts 10, verse 28 says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful, don't miss that, it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. It's unlawful, it's not according to the law of God. They had a command to love their neighbor as their self, but the neighbor was specifically defined as a Jew. It was unlawful to love someone else outside that Jewish nation. But, Peter goes on to say, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common. That's another way to say unholy. Unholy or unclean. Here, God was beginning to transform the national church into an international church where Christ was beginning to make it clear. He says, I've not come to build a national kingdom. I've come to build an international kingdom, and my church will not be made up of just Jews. My church will be made up of, every, of people from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. And in order for that to happen now, a new commandment I give you, not that you love the Jew only, because you thought it was unlawful to love anybody else. But now it's unlawful not to love every nation, tribe, and tongue for whom Christ has died. They are the church. So love now the Jewish church, yes, but love the Gentile church. And even when Christ came into the world, they began to sing, you know, he's a light for the Gentiles, not just the Jew. The Jew didn't quite get that. But they got it slowly as Peter's preaching, as Christ's preaching. The new commandment is for loving the church, every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
not just loving the nation, which was Jew. Um, love the body of Christ. Now, so understanding that same author of 1 John is the Gospel of John. Look at John 13, 34 and 35, the classic passage on love. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus is speaking to uh, his disciples, and he says, A new commandment. So here we have it again. A new commandment. Well, I thought it was an old commandment. It was in Leviticus. No, it's new in this way that I've just described. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. I, and I, I want disciples to love disciples. And I want all of you disciples to love all of the disciples. And all of the disciples will be in every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's the new commandment. That my church loves my church. My church will have a heart not only for commands. My church will have a heart for church. For the people of God um, being built up. 1 John is one of the last books written in the, in the Bible. In the New Testament. And it's about commands. And it's about church. As fruit that confirms we have received the propitiation of Christ. Um, it's not about agreeing on stuff. It's not about disagreeing on stuff. It's about, no, this is just fruit. We love Christ's commands. That's, that's the way he walked. I want to walk the way he walked. We love his church because he died for his church. You see, you'll never find a non-Christian loving the church. You might find them be nice to church folks for what they can get. But where do you find one that wants to sacrifice to build the church? Where do you find one that wants to financially give to build the church where do you find them singing praises giving their body and heart and soul to praising god in his church she's not consistent with their nature they're not inclined to love church they like loving people because people help people but that's not our, and, and there's nothing wrong with us doing that too, but that's not our fruit. Our fruit goes beyond that to a passion to be churchmen and commandment keepers because that's our heart. That confirms us as those for whom Christ has become the propitiation of our sins. What does propitiation do? do? It, it takes people who were once enemies, restores and reconciles. When Christ became the propitiation for my sins, not only did he take me who was an enemy with God and restore me to a right relationship and reconcile me to God, but I was in, in, at enmity with his law. I didn't want to keep it. I want to do what I want to do. But he's restored me to a right living consistent with his law and reconciled me to it that this is good. It is my life. And 
taking care of the church and building the church. I didn't want to do that. I was at enmity with that. But when Christ came into my life, now I want what he wants. He says, I have come to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I say, Lord, send me. Let me be a part of that. I have a heart for that now. To build his church. To be his church. Pray for his church. To praise him in the church. All of this comes through Christ as the propitiation for our sins. Where are you? Where are you this morning? Big word, propitiation, but it's crucial. We all will die and face the judgment seat. We are without hope unless Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And you can know right now without doubt whether that's already happened or not. By your love for commands and your love for church. You find someone that doesn't have those loves, you need to share the good news of Christ with them. They still need propitiation. They still need Christ. If that's you, you still need Christ. My heart's desire and passion is that you are clear. You understand because your life is in the balance if you don't get these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's clear. We don't have to grope in darkness. You've brought us into light. For those who need you, Lord, right now, we just ask that they would say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. Lord Jesus, I receive you. Come into my life. I am without hope without you. I need you to cover all my sins. I need you to give me all your righteousness that I might have an offering in Christ acceptable to God. Father, help them to say that right now, that they would be yours. They would be secure for all eternity. We give you the praise for the security we find in Jesus. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.